A rat race is for rats. We are not rats. We are human beings and people insult us when they talk about our participation in a rat race. Reject the insidious pressures in society that would blunt your critical faculties to all that is happening around you. That would caution silence in the face of injustice lest you jeopardize your chances of promotion and self-advancement. Because this is how it starts. And if you start before you know where you are, you're a, fairly, a fully paid up member of the rat pack. The price is too high. It entails the loss of your dignity and human spirit. Or as Christ put it, what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? A rat race is for rats. The voice of Jimmy Reed and the most famous lines from a speech that was described by the New York Times as the greatest speech since Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address at the time it was delivered in 1972. Jimmy Reed was a working class hero in Scotland, a communist. He was the voice of the Upper Clyde shipbuilders, the UCS, who had a work-in in 1971 and had an industrial triumph as well. And Jimmy Reed rode a wave of popularity to become the rector of Glasgow University, usually a post held by conservatives, but Jimmy Reid was a communist and was part of the Communist Party, later to be part of the Labour Party, still later to be part of the SNP. He's a legendary Scot when he died in 2010 at the age of 78. He was honoured at a state funeral and the eulogists included Billy Connolly and Sir Alec Ferguson. I'll play a few snippets of those speeches. So if you like your Labour history, if you like your Scottish history, this is a great episode. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Speak Ola podcast. I am Tony Wilson. I think it's been a month since the last episode. Been chasing guests all over the place, and I've got a great one for this Jimmy Reid episode. He is Kenny McCaskill, Member of Parliament. He's been at Westminster since 2019, and he was elected as a member for the SNP. He's since defected to the Alba Party. And as an SNP member, he had peripheral dealings with Jimmy Reid, who was an SNP member himself this century. 
But the real reason for getting Kenny McCaskill on is that he's written the biography. It's called Jimmy Reid, A Scottish Political Journey. And you will be on a Scottish political journey in this episode. Kenny has an encyclopedic knowledge of Labour history in Scotland from Red Clyde's side in the early part of the 20th century right through to Jimmy Reid's death in 2010. The feature speech is the rectorial address at Glasgow University. That occurred in April of 1972, but as a sign of the times, there isn't great audio records of the speech. There are snippets that I've found on YouTube, but I haven't been able to find a complete audio recording. So whereas usually on the Speakola podcast, we have the interview, then play the speech, what I'm going to do with this one is insert the fragments of audio we do have of Jimmy Reed's voice, and they will pop up during the interview with Kenny McCaskill. But then at the end, in what I think is a, a lovely gesture from Kenny, he's read in his beautiful Scottish brogue the words of the speech which are transcribed in his biography and which you can find on Speakola if you search Speakola and Jimmy Reid. Speakola is a great speeches project. It is a Tony Wilson project. It's just me who makes it, does all the research, does all the guest booking, does all the interviewing, does all the writing, all the voiceovers and all the editing, publicity, social media. If you want to help me out, you can join up at patreon.com forward slash speakola or you can make a donation at speakola.com forward slash donate. Help me out. It takes a lot of time. But now, Kenny McCaskill. Speakola. Kenny McCaskill, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Glad to be on. So, Kenny, tell us about Jimmy Reid. Was he a part of your childhood growing up? Was he a voice? Well, I never met the man in my childhood, but he was an iconic figure in Scotland at that time. He was reflective of perhaps the uh, industrial situation we had and indeed of a great legacy of support and sympathy. He's a man I hugely admire, and I think even by people who never voted for him and disagreed with his politics, he's revered and certainly respected. Uh, But he's emblematic of the, uh, I think, the late 60s, early 70s in Scotland of the industrial period and of the shipyards. So he was well known for the UCS, the Upper Clyde Shipbuilders. Tell us about where he's from and, and what and what the mood was of the time. Well, he was born in Govan, the same place as Sir Alec Ferguson, who actually uh, uh, crossed paths together and Ferguson gave a great eulogy at Jimmy Reid's uh, funeral. Ferguson, obviously the great football manager with Manchester United. Uh, Jimmy Reid was uh, born in, as is he, in Glasgow. He became probably Western Europe's best-known communist. He was certainly Britain's best-known communist. This, despite the Cold War, uh, it was at a time when the Communist Party was clearly on decline, but had influence in various unions and various sectors in Scotland, certainly shipyards and shipbuilding. He'd been a full-time communist official, but he came back to Scotland in the late 60s. He went to work in the shipyards that were in decline, but still pivotal and reflective of perhaps Scotland's industrial soul as well as society and in 1971 shipyard closures were announced that would have been catastrophic for the Clyde and the communities as indeed they have been but they were coming in one fell swoop and Jimmy was one of the uh, organisers of what was called Upper Clyde Shipyard Working. 
It was basically a first. Uh, they didn't decide to go on strike. They decided to continue working to, uh, I think, give a different public perspective. And so that's where he came to frame. He had been known, well known before then, but the UCS became pivotal. In, in, there was a Tory government and it was viewed as an attack upon workers and the UCS was the vanguard uh, of the uh, working class movement, not just in Scotland, but across the United Kingdom. And this man was an orator of some stature. He had all the skills. And I believe that there was a speech he gave in the shipyards, one that I'm not sure how much of the recording remains, but it was an incredible speech delivered that apparently moved everyone who saw it. Can you tell us a little bit about this famous shipyard speech? Well, there was a famous shipyard speech in which he basically made the declaration that they weren't uh, striking, that they were working. He used a colloquial Scots about no bevying, which is cue for no drinking, no hooliganism. But it set the tone. You know, he spoke articulately. He spoke with authority. He set the tone for the whole uh, dignity of the proceedings, which were these were working men facing challenges. They weren't striking. They were going to continue to work for the right to work, not simply for the right to work, but for their communities to survive because the devastation of closures. So his speech encapsulated, with a bit of humour, the dignity of what they were doing. We're responsible people and we'll conduct ourselves with the dignity and discipline that we have all the time expressed over the last, last few weeks. And there will be no hooliganism. There will be no vandalism. There will be no bevying. So uh, it set the tone. Uh, and I think that obviously set light to support, not just within the yards, but across across industrial Scotland, and indeed wider than just industrial Scotland, as, as we'll come on to, uh, you know, wider support within the community for UCS and for Jimmy in particular, who became the, the voice and the embodiment. There were many others, and Jimmy never sought to deflect from them or take away from them, but because of his articulacy, uh, Jimmy Reid was, uh, uh, was the voice. I mean, he is still recalled as one of our greatest orators of you know, the 20th century. So tell us a bit about that. I mean, the, the, the gift with words and, and the skill with oratory, what, what was his background that might have given him this gift and and how would you compare him is there someone that we can think of as a modern orator that uh, has some jimmy reed isms a, a great scottish speaker well we've, we've currently got a strike on in the uk at the moment with the on the railways and there's a guy from london who's the head of the rail maritime and transport workers mick lynch and i have to say watching mick lynch i'm reminded of jimmy reed because newscasters are coming on by the score, thinking that they're dealing with some rather dour, uneducated trade unionist who won't be particularly articulate and who won't certainly have the breadth of knowledge or education. And Mick Lynch is knocking them down by the score. It is a joy to watch. Prices are rampant. Inflation is rampant. But what else is rampant? Profit has never been higher. We've never had so many billionaires in this society. The super rich are getting richer and richer year after year. The workers are getting poorer year on year. And what are we saying? We refuse to be poor anymore. And to some extent, Jimmy Reid was exactly the same. There has been a history of people like that in Scotland. There was Lawrence Daly and the miners. There were lots of others. We forget that 
this was from a generation where the workers had to educate themselves to be able to deal with the bosses. There was also a veneration of education, certainly amongst the Communist Party that Jimmy grew up in. I knew many of these men. Uh, they were older than me, but I remember in elections when I, uh, I actually used the Communist rooms in West Lothian in one election, uh, the Communist Party was basically folding by then, but they gave us the rooms. And I remember chatting away with guys who had been blacklisted, uh, hadn't been able to work for years because employers wouldn't take them because they were union organisers and Communist Party officials. The breadth of knowledge that pe these people had, I always remember them asking me as I, I'd have been a graduate by then and working in my own law firm, you know, what books do you read? And yet they, you know, not only did they read books, books to understand industry and economics, my, my love of American labour novels and history from Jack London, John Dos Passos, Passos, Upton Sinclair, all of these, Richard Wright, all of these people came from the likes of Jimmy, uh, and Jimmy had got it from others. These were very, very educated people within the Communist Party, within the wider labour movement, uh, because there was a thirst for education and a belief that, you know, for the working class to improve, it had to not just win industrially, it had to win intellectually. Well, we actually had uh, Neil Kinnock on the podcast, and he talked a little bit about that as well. As a, as a working class kid, the emphasis that was put on being widely read, and I was interested reading your biography as well. The way you captured, the way you captured Jimmy Reed's childhood that he that he was at the library every second day getting dickens and Marx and every manner of book oh absolutely i mean i remember going to see his wife joan at the house that he had retired to in rossi and the uh the breadth of the library that he had is extensive it was books of all sorts it was fiction it was non-fiction it, it was across the board and, you know that's why jimmy's ability and i remember seeing you know interviews on television where you know he was able to speak about theology because you know although he wasn't a practicing Christian. He viewed, you know, Christianity and certainly uh, Jesus's uh, deliberations as, as fundamental to socialism. And to some extent, an early proponent of uh, uh, liberation theology before it was becoming, you know, picked up in Central America. So a, a very well-read, educated man, as so many of these men were, and and women. Uh, although uh, the Times did tend to put the men to the front uh, at that era. And he wasn't just a, a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. He actually rose to be the secretary, was it, of the Scottish division of the Communist Party? Well, he, he, he was headhunted and gone down south, basically lead the young communist movement. You know, he was uh, the secretary in charge of that down in London. Uh, he came back to Scotland and basically worked in the yards, but was you know, still involved with the Communist Party here. But to some extent, his persona became bigger than the Communist Party. Uh, he wasn't the head of the Communist Party in Scotland and not alone, not even in the United Kingdom. But I think his profile meant that, you know, he was the only communist that people would really have identified unless you were very actively involved in politics. And indeed his media appearances, not simply the not simply the reporting in the press and, and wider TV, although it was less prominent then just because of the society that we lived in, uh, he was and I think safe to say probably the best known communist in, you know, certainly in Britain, probably in Western Europe. You know, you were left with Enrico Berlinger, a Euro communism in Italy, but he was the he was the man that uh, people identified with. 
And and you say that he's the best Scottish MP that that England never had. He never got elected to office. Is was the communism the thing that held him back? I mean, when you think that the Vietnam War was going down and domino theory and and the Cold War and the thoughts that I, I guess here in Australia there was there was dire warnings about Russia and the Soviet Union. What was the feeling in Scotland? Was there? real sympathy for the communists like there had been in the 1930s and 40s or or that changed by the 60s when Jimmy Reid is still a communist? I mean, the Communist Party never really took off in Scotland as it never really took off in the UK. Uh, There were a variety of reasons for that in Scotland. There was a radical Scottish socialist, John McLean, who wanted to set up a Scottish Communist Party. For whatever reason, Lenin and the Bolsheviks basically insisted upon there being a Communist Party of Great Britain, and that led to McLean breaking off. So to some extent, it limped forward. That said, the communists were a force in Scotland because they were organised, certainly in certain unions. They were organised in the shipyards. They were certainly organised in the NUM, the mining union. And uh, Scotland was one of the leading places where the communists had influence. Electorally, though, the communists really struggled. They did have an elected official, uh, an elected MP in Fife that was elected in the 30s, lost his seat in the late 40s, Willie Gallagher. He was a hero of, of Jimmy Reid's. But the communists never really took off. But you have to remember why Jimmy joined the Communist Party. The major party in Scotland had been a party called the ILP, the Independent Labour Party, that worked with and was affiliated with Labour, but was distinct from Labour. It was very pro-home rule for Scotland. It was to the left of the Labour Party nationally in UK. And that was the party that had been Red Clydeside in the 1910s into the 1920s and that had gone forward. But by the time Jimmy was entering into politics in the post-war era, the uh, ILP had begun to die. It split off from Labour. There was still a guy, Jimmy Maxson, but he died and it was basically going going down. Labour was the party of strength, but Labour was already viewed as trimming to the right after the 1945 election. And so there was some logic to why Jimmy joined the Communist Party. He was committed to socialism. He had been a child of the war, you know, the hero of the Soviet Union, the heroism of their 20-odd million dead. You know, Uncle Joe wasn't such a reviled character then. You know, even Winston Churchill was praising Stalin. So you can understand why there was less hostility when he joined the Communist Party in the the mid-1940s. There was a logic to it. That said, the Communist Party never really took off. It had influence in trade unions, but it was never going forward because of the Cold War. Jimmy, I think, was always perhaps... uh, uncomfortable within the Communist Party. He had disagreed with, uh, you know, the invasion in Hungary. He certainly disagreed, and the whole Communist Party in Britain with the invasion of Czechoslovakia, but the Communists weren't going anywhere. He did stand for election, but as perhaps others, such as John McLean, many more people liked Jimmy as an individual than would ever vote for him in an election. So he stood for election in 1974 when there were two elections. The election in February 1974, I think Jimmy thought he might win. And certainly there were huge turnouts at public meetings. You're talking you know, hundreds, if not thousands, at public meetings, people flowing in to support Jimmy. But not only did the Labour machine come down against them, but the Catholic Church came down against them because this was the days of the Catholic Church uh, uh, being vitriolic towards godless atheism. So Jimmy, you know, struggled to even get to 20%, a remarkable result at a time, you know, when communists 
were polling 1%, 1 1.5%, 2% would be considered, you know, a remarkable result. Jimmy was polling 18, 19, 20% but it was nowhere near enough to get him elected. And so I think that was a disappointment. It was probably a recognition of the difficulties, but uh, he stood for the communists on several occasions. 74 was the height of it. People actually did believe. I mean, the TV cameras, I was a young boy, the TV cameras were at the declaration for the central Dumbarton constituency because people did consider that there might be a shock that a communist could get elected, but it wasn't to be. People would have smiled at him, shook him hand, clapped him in the hall, but they weren't voting for him in the ballot box. And would he have been elected as a Labour Party member? He obviously had that charisma. He came close and uh, he stood, you know, because he left the Communist Party. The Communist Party by then was disintegrating. You know, the Soviet Union hadn't yet gone, but by the the seventies, it wasn't going forward; it was going backwards, and the Soviet Union was beginning its implosion. He left and he joined Labour. It was a time just after he stood in the uh, the election in nineteen seventy nine. He stood in Dundee East. He was actually defeated by the SNP candidate there. Probably it wasn't the seat for him because, uh, although you know it was won by the SNP, I think a lot of people voted to keep Jimmy Reid out. Uh, and equally, he was viewed as an incomer coming from Glasgow to Dundee, perhaps going from Melbourne to Sydney, what you're doing here sort of thing. Yeah. This isn't your patch. And obviously things were changing. So he wasn't elected in 1979. He didn't stand again. He was involved in Labour, and particularly in 1983. But when... Neil Kinnock took over, who have just mentioned earlier, he began to distance himself, and by the time Tony Blair took over, that was it. And uh, like many people in Scotland and elsewhere, Tony Blair was the Rubicon crossing, and Jimmy <laughs> left Labour as he, as he had left as he had left the Communist Party. In many ways, I think he probably did more by not being elected. Had he been elected, he would have been an opposition MP, he would have been a backbench MP, he would have never been thrust to the limelight. He was able to achieve more by going on to television, where he was very good, by writing in papers, where he was outstanding. So he achieved far more. And to some extent, if he had going to be successful in politics, it would have had to be earlier. Uh, and he would have had to sell his, you know, his political principles, which he was never prepared to do. So take us to this idea of the rector of Glasgow University. I imagine Glasgow University is a, a magnificent institution in Scotland. Is it five, five, five or six hundred years old? It is. It's uh, the oldest in Scotland. It's you know magnificent building. We've got to put it in the context of the time because the UCS, Upper Clyde Shipyard Strike, that we're talking about, that started on the 30th of July 1971. And that was when, you know, the yards were occupied. And so the rectorial election was October of 1971. So it was in the middle of the shipyard occupation. Jimmy was huge profile. Uh, students from communists through socialists through SNP independent supporters, even Christian organisations were supporting him. It would also be fair to say that at that time, university rectors tended to be establishment figures. University, uh, going to university, and I did myself not many years after that, it was still at a time when university attendance was maybe by 10% of the population. It was very class-orientated. Universities were more for the representatives of the middle or upper classes, the working class, you know, the working class laddie made good, went to uni, but they were few and far between. So he won the election, uh, probably on the back of the whole, you know, 
He won the election because he was an outstanding candidate, but he also won it because there was a mood swing. And to some extent, it was an opportunity for people to support the strike, even when you were a university student. His election was quite convincing, but it also showed, I think, the support for the for the working that went beyond just the working class communities. It went into the middle class communities because it was their sons and daughters who were voting for him. So he was elected in October of 1971. The strike ended in February of 72, and the rectorial address wasn't until uh, April of 1972. In fact, it was my 14th birthday. I read it and checked. I didn't realize that. It was my 14th birthday. Uh, <laughs> So he made this address that he prepared for, uh, and as I say, it's in the backdrop. Scotland was still a very much industrialised union place. The shipyard occupation had been successful because the Tory government backed down and the workforce was saved. There were some redundancies, but not the catastrophe that there would have been. So to some extent, you know, his star had probably never been higher, but uh, equally, he grasped the moment. This was something that he prepared for. He honed. He wrote the speech. It wasn't the longest of speeches. But then, as people say, neither was a Gettysburg Address by Lincoln. But uh, it was also going into the lion's den because, you know, you had to wear the white dicky bow that uh, are sometimes done. I don't know if that's the same in, in Australia. It's still done at graduation ceremonies in, in yeah. Scotland. And the gown had to be put on. I think people didn't quite know what they were expecting. The university senior academics, they were less uh, less commercialised then than they are now with uh, having become big businesses then, but they were still an institution of power. And I think there was some trepidation about what he was going to be like. It was in a a hall and we can imagine that I mean, some of your listeners would have been alive at then but you know the whole atmosphere would have been you know uh, vastly different it would have been quite hierarchical as it, the, the ambience of the of the the institution uh, quite um, quite forbidding for him but he went in and just knocked them out of the park it'd be fair to say he got a standing ovation from students and staff who were in the hall and indeed, uh, it was picked up by the New York Times, who referred to it as, I think, after Gettysburg Address, the, one of the greatest speeches ever made. It's an incredible review that the New York Times gives. It, it says it is the greatest speech since Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and they they reprint the speech in full. Can, can you tell us anything about the writing of it? Uh, you said in the book that it was mainly written in one day, about a day in advance of the address. Did How did you find out anything about this speech? Where, where, where were the details? Well, there, there was writings. I also spoke to his family. I know his daughter uh, well and keep in touch with her. So I, I spoke to family. I spoke to friends. I spoke to political colleagues. So I, I went around. But the, it, he does seem to have been in the, the his bedroom at home and just uh, worked on it. I mean, it's... I think it's symptomatic of the intellect of the man, the, the, the language, the vocabulary. You know, you've got to remember, this is somebody who leaves school at 15, doesn't go to university, but he reads, he is the archetypal autodidact. He teaches himself, you know, through reading, as watching, as I mentioned earlier, Mick Lynch from the RNT. These guys, they devour books, they read it, you can see the brain, you know, almost trundling. So the, it wasn't just as much the vocabulary, because I, I reread it before I, I came on again. It was the breadth of where he uh, went to, the quotations he took, whether from the Burns, from the Bible, the references he made. It, it, it was a phenomenal amount. And to, it must have been, I mean, to some extent, it, it reflects and encapsulated political opinions. I mean, Jimmy was 
was a communist who was never comfortable in the Communist Party and its rigidity of a democratic socialism of, you know, accepting the, the dogma from down. And I think because of his persona, he was able, they couldn't they couldn't rein him in. Jimmy was too big to be disciplined, so they yeah, just had to kind of throw it. Equally, his views of democratic socialism were expounded in that, that people are used and flung away, that education should be liberating people, that we can create a better society. It was a time in Scotland when there changes were being made. People were feeling, you know, this was before Thatcher came in, deindustrialized took place and, and heroin and alcohol flowed into housing schemes where people had previously gone to work. To some extent, you know, he almost predicted what might befall us because at that stage, you know, he was condemnatory of, of not condemnatory, but saying, you know, that what would happen in terms of, you know, social issues. They have come and they've been far worse. You know, it was the cri de coeur of the dignified working class. And the word, I guess, that summarises what the speech is about is alienation. He uses it in the first sentence of the speech. Addressed today is alienation. And let me right at the outset define what I mean by alienation. It's the cry of men who feel themselves the victims of blind economic forces beyond their control. It's the frustration of the great mass of ordinary people excluded from the processes of decision making. It's the feeling of despair and hopelessness that pervades people who feel with every justification that they have no real say in shaping or determining their own destinies. Tell us about the, the theme of alienation in, in this speech. Well, I, I, he terms it an alienation and almost in all of his, his widest aspects. He talks about people, you know, and local government being centralised and people, he refers to coming from the Western region. You know, he'd actually been a councillor in Clyde Bank. You know, Clyde Bank's a town in Scotland, but we had town councils in those days. We then created district councils, but they seemed to be getting ever bigger. And, you know, he made reference to people coming from the Western region. He made that humorously and euphemistically. Nobody comes from the Western region. They come from Clyde Bank or the West of Scotland. But, you know, people were feeling that the town hall was disappearing into the city, disappearing into the distance. More importantly, people were seeing businesses were being bought over by multinationals. Headquarters were going south. So even the middle class were feeling it. The working class were experiencing job closure. People, as he was was rightly saying, people in the 40s and 50s were realising that, you know, if they lost their job, they would never work again. To some extent, you know, he foresaw what might happen if uh, Thatcher got in and she did. You know, people were flung on the scrap heap never to work again. You know, alcohol and drugs moved in as people lost hope and turned to uh, self-harm and harming others, you know, because they were alienated. Society gave them nothing and in return they uh, struck out. And it actually made me think of the post-Trump election as well and, and, and what maybe happened in the aftermath of the the financial collapse of, of this century. It's, I think it hits a modern chord as well. Absolutely. And I mean, another section I like, you know, is that from the very depth of my being, I challenge the right of any man or any group of men in business or in government to tell a fellow human being that he or she is expendable. I mean, that literally was what the strike had been about. And as I say, I think it ties in, you know, he looks back to what the strike was about. He looks forward to the society that we could get. He indicates the society we might get if we don't change. And sadly, that's uh, 
come about. And uh, as we see, not simply with Thatcher, but then with Trump. A rat race is for rats. We are not rats. We are human beings and people insult us when they talk about our participation in a rat race. Reject the insidious pressures in society that would blunt your critical faculties to all that is happening around you. That would caution silence in the face of injustice lest you jeopardize your chances of promotion and self-advancement. Because this is how it starts. And if you start before you know where you are, you're a fully, a fully paid-up member of the rat pack. The price is too high. It entails the loss of your dignity and human spirit. Or as Christ put it, what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? And I guess the line that's quoted and re-quoted is the, the rat race line. Did you find out anything about that, how he grabbed that, or was that something he'd used before? I don't know if he'd ever used it before, but it, it is such a... I mean, what Jimmy had was a huge intellect, but he, a huge vocabulary, but he had the ability to speak to ordinary people in an ordinary language that we understand, and also to use colloquialisms, not always to be highfalutin, as we might say. And so, you know, I, I think that is just the, the genius of the man, that he was able to take a concept and to put it in vocabulary that everybody you know, could understand. And, you know, he did that with his, you know, new, new hooliganism, uh, no bevying. He did it with, you know, you know, with the human race, you know, we're human beings, we're not rats. So I think it was just his, his ability to, to, to translate into, into ordinary language for people. And he has this education bent in the speech as well, that, that education is the, is the right and the, the avenue to prosperity and success in Scotland. If automation and technology is accompanied as it must be with full employment, then the leisure time available to man will be enormously increased. This being so, then our whole concept of education must change. The object must be to equip and educate people for life, not for work. In, in the 70s in Australia, we had free tertiary education came in under Gough Whitlam. Was there a, a socialisation of the society at all in the 70s? Was there free education in Scotland? Yes, I mean, people, you know, I went to university, I, I went to university in 76, uh, at that stage there were, there were no tuition fees, there are no tuition fees in Scotland, the SNP administration got rid of them and it brought in, but you also got a grant, so, you know, university education took off in the late 70s, and but has since been rolled back, it has, you know, continued in terms of its scale, its breadth, but uh, the ability to go is now much more challenging, because certainly south of the border, fees are humongous, their grants aren't available and grants really aren't available in Scotland, so more go, but it's more challenging. 
And the, he, he brings a speech home with, a, I think, a, a positive and uplifting message about faith in humanity. You know, all that is good in man's heritage involves recognition of our common humanity and unashamed acknowledgement that man is good by nature. And he uses the Robbie Burns. Is it Robbie Burns or Robbie Burns? I, I always thought Robbie Burns. Robbie. Yeah, Rabbi. he used the, the the Burns poem. Is that a famous poem in Scotland, or or did uh, Jimmy Reid pluck that from relative obscurity? That's not one of Burns's most famous uh, most famous you know lines. There are, there, are, there are far more ones that you know whether we sing even in in Australia at uh, Hogmanay and Nairdy. Uh So that's not the one you know. It was one I have to say I didn't know until I you know I read the speech. It's not one that you know would be the would be the go to. But I think you know what it did do was uh, was put you know the moral basis because he also made the within the quote, you know, he referred from Christ saying, what did it profit a man if he gained the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? I remember, you know, I think Jimmy wrote about it and others that knew him closely in the Communist Party also commented on it. Jimmy wasn't really a Marxist-Leninist or an ideologist in that respect. I mean, his socialism, as indeed, I think, Scottish socialism that he argued, Scottish socialism was based not so much on ideology, but on morality. And by that, not, you know, uh, uh, not perhaps, you know, that put in, you know, in terms of a permissive society or whatever, but morality of right and wrong. And the people that he had admired, for example, I referred to earlier, the ILP, there was a deep root in Scotland between those who had been dissident in terms of their Christian faith, who had left the established church uh, and who had been involved in radical politics in the 1790s in the lee of the French Revolution. The archetypal Scottish radical was viewed as a dissenting weaver that he was weaving, you know, before the miners came along. Weavers were the uh, were the shock troops of the working class. Everybody in Scotland thinks that people were in the Church of Scotland or the, you know, when the Catholic Church came back in with Irish immigration. In fact, a fifth of Scots were not in the Church of Scotland. Some weren't in any church, but many were in, you know, dissenting churches. In England, it tended to Methodism. In Scotland, it tended to be the United uh, Presbyterian Church. And the radicals that were elected in 1922, one was a, the Reverend Campbell Stephen was a, was a minister. Another, the Reverend James Barr was returned. Others were practicing Catholics, such as, you know, John Wheatley or Patrick Dolan in Glasgow. So, there was a morality, you know, not all were temperance, some were temperance, but, you know, others who weren't temperance, there still was, socialism was about right and wrong. It was about mm. some things that, you know, as even as the American, you know, constitution says, some things are self-evident. It is just not right that people should be unemployed, that inequality should be rising. And that's what they fought for. Some of them did so within their practicing faith, but others did so, you know, and Jimmy might have used the lexicon of, you know, Marxism-Leninism in speeches in the 50s and 60s. But in the main, what drove them was the morality of it's self-evident, it is right and wrong, that people should go to the wall and some should be obscenely rich. It is just not right. And that's the masterpiece of this speech, isn't it? Because, I mean, you, you put it really well in the in the biography that this was a speech, I think, where people were expecting a trade unionist to polarise and maybe to be didactic and to and to hit the lectern and, and, and to... And to speak in a, in a in a very left right way, but this speech appealed across a huge swathe of the community and across the entire world, and, and that's because he did hit some sort of moral truth beyond the left right communist capitalist divide. 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, if you were to read the, the speech in the abstract and not know who had given it or where, you might very well have thought it had been given by a by a, a, a theologian or, or somebody, because there's nothing that identifies it as, you know, communist in any shape or form. There is no you know, Marxist ideology. Uh, you know, the socialism is rooted in morality. To some extent, it could have been given by Martin Luther King. It's of that, uh, mm. it's of that, you know, million man march. This is about dignity and freedom. Leaving aside the the the, the race question, that obviously uh, MLK touched upon, but I have no doubt that would have that would have inculcated into Jimmy. I mean, you know, this was only three four years before uh, some of MLK's great speeches. Some would have been six or seven years before, but Jimmy would have grown up with them. So. I think it was in that context that it was it was simply right. It was a it was a it was a plea also for the communities because they had fought for the right to work. Because had John Brown's closed in Clyde Bank, it would have killed the town. As it was, it eventually did close, and it did close the town. And it's a town with huge deprivation issues even to this day. You know, with huge drug and alcohol dependency problems. So you know, it was about the right of man and women to you know to have a decent life and not simply to be viewed as, as he referred to as expendable and of some economic process, that there had to be something more than that. We're not simply people that could be cast aside. And Kenny, we do love a full audio recording of a speech. I, I believe we're in, not in luck with this speech. Can you tell us why we only get these tiny fragments? Well, I think that was just the time. I mean, you know, uh, although it was a big event, you know, we were in the the, the non-media age. Uh, I think back then we probably still only had two channels, maybe three TV channels in Scotland. This wasn't on the television. It was the days when, you know, it would be covered by reporters because newspaper actually had reporters, uh, which is why, you know, it was picked up by the, by the uh, New York Times. You know, nowadays, I've no doubt it would have been video recorded, would be archived, and that probably started even 20, 30 years ago. But unfortunately, in 1972, Glasgow University didn't do that. We didn't have mobile phones, so nobody could uh, could record it. And sadly, you know, we're the we're the, the the worst for that. We have YouTube clips of 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 TV interviews and indeed of the speech in the yard, but we don't have a full length narration, which is a great tragedy because it's it's not a lot. It's not it's not a lengthy one. It's like watching it's like watching you know mlk you you know you you're captivated by it you absolutely are and and did it lead to a level of greater celebrity once he's in the new york times was he doing international appearances i mean i believe i believe michael parkinson was actually was he a candidate for the rectorship, or was? Is, is, I think ironically he... that, that, that that had been it pulled out, but he had been mentioned. I mean, became quite a celebrity, and there were actually even some theological programs because I actually went through letters in the kind of archives at Glasgow University where he appeared on some theological programs, and there were all these ministers and vicars writing in, agreeing with him, uh, you know, and and uh, accepting the basis of his theology. So he became a bit of a media celebrity. I think, you know, people began to see, you know, that he was good on the screen. He wasn't just an outstanding orator, but he could captivate the small screen. And that's what he went on to do. And Kenny, you were with the SNP in the early 2000s in the Scottish Parliament. And Jimmy Reid, I think, went over to the SNP around the turn of the century as well. Did you ever bump into him through SNP contacts? Yes, I mean, uh, I was there. I mean, the SNP, it was a big coup for the SNP to sign up Jimmy Reid because, you know, certainly for anybody my age, 
even younger and older, uh, Jimmy is a, you know iconic figure. So the SNP signing Jimmy up in the noughties when Tony Blair was taking uh, New Labour screaming to the right and the world into tragedy with the Iraq war, uh, Jimmy came across to the SNP. Like Jimmy, I've made a journey. I don't think Jimmy died while still an SNP member. I think, like me, he probably wouldn't be an SNP member, but it was part of that political journey that I uh, I wrote my biography. He went from communist to Labour to SNP, as indeed the voting public in many areas in Scotland did as well. They went from left to Labour to SNP, and we'll see where we go after this. Well, this is interesting. I, I, I'm only reading from Australia and I haven't heard about this division in the SNP in recent years, but you've jumped ship on the SNP as well and become part of the Elba Party. Can you, can you tell us about that divide? Well, I think, you know, many of us see new SNP replicating new Labour. There has been a shift to the uh, centre. There has been a movement from inequality and class towards gender and uh, identity politics. Uh, and I think there are many people who probably are where Jimmy was looking for the ILP. They want a radical version for independence or indeed home rule, but that's not on offer. So it's the radical independence. And I can think of union leaders in Scotland and others who espouse that. So I think where Scotland is at the moment, where I am, is where Jimmy was, which he wants, he wants a Scotland that is to the left. For Scotland to be an independent nation, then it has to be to the left. Uh, and that's the current divide within the SNP is as we press on for arguments over constitutional change. And you wrote the biography. Is there still a hunger for Jimmy Reid? Is he a, now a, a lost figure or a disappearing figure in the public imagination over there? What's, what's his status? Well, obviously, there's a generation growing up now who have no recollection. There's a generation of people who have no recollection that there was a time that the Scottish Parliament didn't exist. You know, even when I was Justice Secretary, I was always gobsmacked by that, by youngsters coming in. But I have to say, I mean, I tell a story. I was coming back up from London on Thursday morning and I got off the train and I was meeting the RNT strikers at their demo and one of the uh, one of the shop stewards there had mentioned he'd been reading my book, so I was pleased to know. So I think, you know, those in the independence and indeed radical movements in Scotland still revere Jimmy. He is one of our greats and always will be. He just encapsulates what Scots like to think of themselves and sometimes we don't live up to it. But, you know, he, he is just a good man from humble origins, great intellect, a gift of the gab. It, to some extent, it's a political version of Rabbi Burns. You know, the humble the humble man, self-educated, who is, uh, you know, espouses egalitarianism. From here in Melbourne, we've got one of our own who's gone over to Scotland and become the manager of Celtic in Ange Postacoglu. Uh, it, would Jimmy have been a an Ange Postacoglu and Celtic fan, or was he was he uh, what was his club over there in in Glasgow? I think Jimmy would have obviously been Celtic. He went along much then, but he was ecumenical in many ways. He, uh, he he used to revere the Hibernian forward line because that was the team of the you know, of the early 50s when he was growing up very interested in football. But, you know, in terms of the religious divide in Glasgow, he was condemnatory of it. You know, Celtic and Rangers and I, I exculpate Ange Postolodgu. I think he's been a remarkable manager and blocked him. But there's almost an institutionalisation of the sectarian divide within the football clubs so yeah. I think you'd find Jimmy Jimmy would like good football. His sympathies would veer towards Celtic, but he would condemn almost a structured a structured sectarianism that just helps sell helps sell shirts and fuels 
social issues in Scotland. And did you ever see him towards the end when he was when he was yeah, dying? Or? Uh, no, not when he was dying. But I remember him coming to SNP conferences and coming into the tea room. He was still, you know, a guy who was charismatic, even although he was walking with a with a stick. Uh, he was still charismatic to who people, you know, hushed voices and veneration. Uh, you know, he is arguably the, 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 the greatest Scotsman of that era, which is why, you know, at his funeral, you know, not only was there Alex Salmond, the First Minister, but there was, uh, you know, Sir Alec Ferguson and others, you know, the great and the good of Scotland turned out for his funeral, and rightly so. I saw the news on Wednesday morning. So dies one of the greatest examples of Scottish working-class character verve, intelligence and grace. Ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't have put it better myself. Jimmy Reid, cheerio and thank you very, very much. And uh, we do love a good speech on Speakola. Is, is the Sir, Sir Alec Ferguson speech a, a beauty? Are you able, if you do have a copy of it? I think I have it somewhere because uh, there, I, I think somebody sent me a DVD or recording of the eulogies. So I, I think I have that somewhere, you know, because it was the first, it would have been recorded because of the, the, the timing of it and, and there was the First Minister. It was said that he was seen in the Hamden Tea Room telling Dennis Law, our greatest ever player, how he scored his goals. <laughs> now, I checked out this morning, it's true. I can see him. There's eyes right on Dennis, trapped in a corner, can't move, and Dennis says, the best man-marking job he's ever had. I went down to speak to Alec Ferguson in, in Manchester about, uh, when I was writing the book about Jimmy Reid, and he was very warm and friendly and supportive, and, uh, you know, they'd kept in touch. They'd obviously, you know, Alec was a few years younger than Jimmy. He'd been involved in strikes in the shipyards after Jimmy had gone down to, to London to be a full-time communist official. But I still think they, they came from within several streets of each other in Govan. They crisscrossed. Jimmy went to stay with them once when he was getting... He had denounced uh, Arthur Scargill's behaviour in the miners' strike. He supported the miners, but uh, disagreed with Scargill. And he'd been bruised by press reception, and he went up to stay with Alec Ferguson, who was then uh, then the Aber still the Aberdeen manager before he went to Manchester, and the the whole history and his uh, his reputation morphed. Absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful getting this history lesson, a whole a feeling that we're getting the whole second half of the twentieth century in Scotland through the this amazing figure of Jimmy Reid. So thank you so much for joining us, Kenny. Very welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. And encourage everyone to get hold of the biography, Jimmy Reid, A Scottish Political Journey. Great book. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Kenny. Thank you. Good to speak to you. All the best. Those of you who are signed up to the Speakola newsletter, which you can do by going to speakola.com and scrolling 10 lines down, you get a prompt to join the mailing list. If you've signed up to the newsletter, you may have heard that I've started a writing project, a newsletter project of its own. It's not to do with Speakola. It's a sub stack and it'll be blog posts. The first one I put up was about my son, Jack, who has cerebral palsy rolling through the Hawthorne banner. So that was the first piece I posted, and I'm going to be posting regular pieces of writing, both past and present, 
And so if you want to get a taste of that, you can sign up. If you go to Substack, Good One Wilson, or you can click on the link in the show notes. On the book front, I've got a website, Tony Wilson Author. And if you're not going to become a patron or a donor to speak Ola, buying a book is a big help to me. So you can look up any of my 20-odd titles there. But now it's time for Speech of the Week. And Kenny McCaskill, he's hung around at the end of the interview and he's going to read out the speech from Jimmy Reed, the rectorial address from the 26th of April, 1972. Alienation is the precise and correctly applied word for describing the major social problem in Britain today. People feel alienated by society. In some intellectual circles, it is treated almost as if it's a new phenomenon. It has, however, been with us for years. What I believe to be true is that today it is more widespread, more pervasive than ever before. Let me right at the outset define what I mean by alienation. It is the cry of the men who feel themselves the victims of blind economic forces beyond their control. It is the frustration of ordinary people excluded from the processes of decision making. The feeling of despair and hopelessness that pervades people who feel with justification that they have no say in shaping or determining their own destinies. Many may not have rationalised it, may not even understand, may not be able to articulate it, but they feel it. It therefore conditions and colours their social attitudes. Alienation expresses itself in different ways and different people. It is to be found in what our courts often describe as the criminal antisocial behaviour of a section of the community. It's expressed by those young people who want to opt out of society, by dropouts, the so-called maladjusted, those who seek to escape permanently from the reality of society through intoxicants and narcotics. Of course, it would be wrong to say it was the sole reason for these things but it is a much greater factor in all of them than is generally recognised. Society and its prevailing sense of values leads to another form of alienation. It alienates some from humanity. It partially dehumanises some people, makes them insensitive, ruthless in their handling of fellow human beings, self-centred and grasping. The irony is they are often considered normal and well-adjusted. It's my sincere contention that anyone who can be totally adjusted to our society is in greater need of psychiatric analysis and treatment than anyone else. They remind me of the character in the novel Catch-22, the father of Major Major. He was a farmer in the American Midwest. He hated suggestions for things like Medicare, social services, unemployment benefits or civil rights. He was, however, an enthusiast for the agricultural policies that paid farmers for not bringing their fields under cultivation. From the money he got for not growing alfalfa, he brought more land in order not to grow alfalfa. He became rich. Pilgrims came from all over the state to sit at his feet and learn how to be a successful non-grower of alfalfa. His philosophy was simple. The poor didn't work hard enough, and so they were poor. He believed that the good Lord gave him two strong hands to grab as much as he could for himself. He is a comic figure. 
But think, have you not met his like here in Britain, here in Scotland? I have. It's easy and tempting to hate such people, however it's wrong. They're as much products of society and of consequence of that society, human alienation, as a poor dropout. They are losers. They've lost the essential elements of our common humanity. Man is a social being. Real fulfilment for any person lies in service to his fellow men and women. The big challenge to our civilization is not Oz, a magazine I haven't seen, let alone read, nor is it permissiveness, although I agree our society is too permissive. Any society which, for example, permits over one million people to be unemployed is far too permissive for my liking. Nor is it moral laxity in the narrow sense that the word is generally employed, although in a sense, here we come nearer to the problem. It does involve morality, ethics, and our concept of human values. The challenge we face is that of rooting out anything and everything that distorts and devalues human relations. Let me give two examples from contemporary experience to illustrate the point. Recently on television, I saw an advert. The scene is a banquet. A gentleman is on his feet proposing a toast. His speech is full of phrases like this full-bodied specimen. Sitting beside him is a young, buxom woman. The image she projects is not pompous, but foolish. She is visibly preening herself, believing that she is the object of the bloke's eulogy. Then he concludes, and now I give then a brand name of what used to be described as Empire Sherry. Then the laughter. Derisive and cruel laughter. The real point, of course, is this. In this charade, the viewers were obviously expected to identify not with the victim, but with her tormentors. The other illustration is the widespread implicit acceptance of the concept of the term rat race. The picture it conjures up is one where we're scurrying around, scrambling for position, trampling on others, backstabbing, all in pursuit of personal success. Even genuinely intended, friendly advice can sometimes take the form of someone saying to you, listen, you look after number one. Or as they say in London, bang the bell, Jack, I'm on the bus. To the students of Glasgow University, I address this appeal. Reject these attitudes. Reject the values and false morality that underlie these attitudes. A rat race is for rats. We're not rats, we're human beings. Reject the insidious pressures in society that would blunt your critical faculties to all that is happening around you, that would caution silence in the face of injustice lest you jeopardise your chances of promotion and self-advancement. This is how it starts, and before you know where you are, you're a fully paid-up member of the Rat Pack. The price is too high. It entails the loss of your dignity and human spirit. Or as Christ put it, what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Profit is the sole criterion used by the establishment to evaluate economic activity. From the rat race to lame ducks, the vocabulary in vogue is a giveaway. It's more reminiscent of a human menagerie than human society. The power structures that have inevitably emerged from this approach threaten and undermine our hard-won democratic rights. The whole process is towards the centralisation and concentration of power 
in fewer and fewer hands. The facts are there for all who want to see. Giant monopoly companies and consortia dominate almost every branch of our economy. The men who wield effective control within these giants exercise a power over their fellow men, which is frightening and is a negation of democracy. Government by the people for the people becomes meaningless unless it includes major economic decision-making by the people for the people. This is not simply an economic matter. In essence, it is an ethical and moral question. For whoever takes important economic decisions in society, ipso facto determines the social priorities of that society. From the Olympian heights of an executive suite and an atmosphere where your success is judged by the extent to which you can maximise profits, the overwhelming tendency must be to see people as units of production, as indices in your accountant's books. To appreciate fully the inhumanity of this situation, you have to see the hurt and despair in the eyes of a man suddenly told he is redundant, without provision made for suitable alternative employment, with the prospect in the west of Scotland, if he is in his late 40s or 50s, of spending the rest of his life in the labour exchange. Someone, somewhere, has decided that he is unwanted, unneeded, and is to be thrown on the industrial scrap heap. From the very depth of my being, I challenge the right of any man or any group of men in business or in government to tell a fellow human being that he or she is expendable. The concentration of power in the economic field is matched by the centralisation of decision-making in the political institutions of society. The power of Parliament has undoubtedly been eroded over past decades with more and more authority being invested in the executive. The power of local authorities has been and is being systematically undermined. The only justification I can see for local government is a counterbalance to the centralised character of a national government. Local government is to be restructured. What an opportunity, one would think, for decentralising as much power as possible back to the local communities. Instead, the proposals are for centralising local government. It's once again a blueprint for bureaucracy, not democracy. If these proposals are implemented, in a few years, when asked, where do you come from? I can reply, the Western region. It even sounds like a hospital board. It stretches from Oban to Govan and eastwards to include most of the Glasgow conurbation. As in other matters, I must ask the politicians who favour these proposals, where and how, in your calculations, did you quantify the value of a community, of community life, of a sense of belonging, of the feeling of identification? These are rhetorical questions. I know the answer. Such human considerations do not feature in their thought processes. Everything that is proposed from the establishment seems almost calculated to minimise the role of the people, to miniaturise man. I can understand how attractive this prospect must be to those at the top. Those of us who refuse to be pawns in the power game can be picked up by their bureaucratic tweezers and dropped in a filing cabin under M for malcontent or maladjusted. When you think of some of the high flats around us, it can hardly be an accident 
that they're as near as one could get to an architectural representation of a filing cabinet. If modern technology requires greater and larger productive units, let's make our wealth-producing resources and potential subject to public control and to social accountability. Let's gear our society to social need, not personal greed. Given such creative reorientation of society, there is no doubt in my mind that in a few years we could eradicate in our country the scourge of poverty, the underprivileged slums and insecurity. Even this is not enough. To measure social progress purely by material advance is not enough. Our aim must be the enrichment of the whole quality of life. It requires a social and cultural, or if you wish, a spiritual transformation of our country. A necessary part of this must be the restructuring of the institutions of government and, where necessary, the evolution of additional structures so as to involve the people in the decision-making processes of our society. The so-called experts will tell you that this would be cumbersome or marginally inefficient. I'm prepared to sacrifice a margin of efficiency for the value of the people's participation. Anyway, in the longer term, I reject this argument. To unleash the latent potential of our people requires that we give them responsibility. The untapped resources of the North Sea are as nothing compared to the untapped resources of our people. I am convinced that the great mass of our people grow through life without even a glimmer of what they could have contributed to their fellow human beings. This is a personal tragedy. It's a social crime. The flowering of each individual's personality and talents is the precondition for everyone's development. In this context, education has a vital role to play. If automation and technology is accompanied as it must be with a full employment, then the leisure time available to man will be enormously increased. If that is so, then our whole concept of education must change. The whole object must be to equip and educate people for life, not solely for work or for a profession. The creative use of leisure and communion with and in service to our fellow human beings can and must become an important element in self-fulfillment. Universities must be in the forefront of development, must meet social needs and not lag behind them. It is my earnest desire that this great University of Glasgow should be in the vanguard initiating changes and setting the example for others to follow. Part of our educational process must be the involvement of all sections of the university on the governing bodies. The case for student representation is unanswerable. It is inevitable. My conclusion is to reaffirm what I hope and certainly intend to be the spirit permeating this address. It's an affirmation of faith in humanity. All that is good in man's heritage involves recognition of our common humanity, an unashamed acknowledgement that man is good by nature. Burns expressed it in a poem that technically was not his best, yet captured the spirit in Why Should We Idly Waste Our Pride? The golden age will then revive, each man shall be a brother. In harmony we all shall live until the earth together. In virtue-trained, enlightened youth shall move each fellow creature 
and time shall surely prove the truth that man is good by nature. It's my belief that all the factors to make a practical reality of such a world are maturing now. I would like to think that our generation took mankind some way along the road towards this goal. It's a goal worth fighting for. Thank you, Kenny McCaskill, MP, lives in Moray in Scotland. Thank you so much for all the time you gave up. There were a few technical hiccups and you absolutely stuck with me to the end and I really appreciated it. His book, Jimmy Reed, A Scottish Political Journey, is an excellent read. I grabbed it on Kindle. I'm sure you can as well. Or you can try to look for a hard copy. Thanks to everyone who's joined the Patron Club, who's donating a little bit each month, as little as $3 a month. The most recent have been Katrina Swall, Emily Rowe and Joe Dane. Emily's an ex-guest on the show. She did a beautiful episode about the eulogy she delivered for her husband, her late husband, Matt Carney. If you want to join up, it's patreon.com forward slash speakola or just make a donation. It can be a regular donation through speakola.com forward slash donate. Quite apart from donations, you can help my podcast in all the usual ways. And I've just been listening to the wonderful Dead Eyes. Now there is a podcast, but just spreading the word would help. Putting a post on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram saying you like this podcast or just telling a friend that you like it, that really helps. It helps us build the audience, helps keep going. That's it for the episode. Looking forward to the next one. Do have the Premier of South Australia booked, Peter Malinowskis. He's coming up in August, but I'll have another episode out before then too. Speak well. Speak well.